Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Frozen 2, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influence pop culture at large. <laughs> A brief disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney+, Plus. so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I can paint with all the colours of the wind, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, this week I'm just a hapless clown trying my best to dodge custard pies while riding around the big top on a tiny unicycle. The uh, real ringmaster here is the smartest clown I know, Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, how's it going? Yeah, I'm good. I'm just kind of reeling from the uh, the smartest clown I know introduction. I feel like your introductions, as we've been going through, have been getting ever more like kind of audacious and and kind of bigging me up <laughs> as this <laughs> this kind of you know genius authoritative figure. And I think the smartest clown I know is the first truly accurate one that we've got. I'll I'll take that. I was going to say I really like that you're sort of more anxious about the the smartest bit than the clown bit because <laughs> you say like, you just fully accept the clown part. But you are the smartest clown. You're a you you know all of this stuff. You've been what we're four episodes in now, and you've been absolutely schooling us in in all things Disney. It's been amazing. Well, I mean, it's it's what it's what I get paid to do. Not in this context, but uh, in other contexts, it's what I get paid to do. And um, so I'm glad that you feel I'm doing it to an acceptable standard, Ben. Yeah, of course, of course. And uh, yeah, this is a good one this week. This is, we're back on sort of terror ferber. It was a bit of a strange week last week with Fantasia. It was a very different sort of film. And now we're back. We're back in the land of narrative. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very simple and straightforward until it isn't. <laughs> yeah, as we'll come to discuss. But that's enough working the crowd from us. We're all sat down. The register is complete. And it's time for class to begin. This time, after the audiovisual extravaganza of Fantasia, we get hit right in the feels with the big-hearted, big-eared elephant classic that is Dumbo. So yeah, Sam, after last week we were in the wilds of non-narrative, abstract, impressionist animation with uh, with Fantasia, uh, we're back in the land of, of plots and characters and uh, narrative three-lines. So can you give us a little summary of, of Dumbo? What's it all about? So, Mr. Stork delivers a beautiful bouncing baby elephant to Mrs. Jumbo, one of the elephants, at the Floridian Circus. Only this elephant is not like the other elephants. He's got gigantic, disproportionate ears, which causes all of the other elephants to reject him. Eventually, sick of watching people bully her son, Mrs. Jumbo lashes out at the circus goers and has to be locked up. Left all alone, Dumbo is befriended by Timothy Q. Mouse. And together, they make the shocking discovery that Dumbo can actually fly using his gigantic ears. And with this newly found superpower, they return to the circus, take revenge on their enemies, and Dumbo becomes the biggest superstar in the land. 
There we go. There we go. And it packs all of that story into just over an hour. So last week, one of my big beefs with uh, Fantasia was was how long it was, which we established that the context that you go and see it in is a big night out at the cinema, this big orchestral experience. You want to go and get value for money. You're in it for two and a half hours. That's great. Watching it at home, maybe not so. This time, total opposite. Dumbo gets in, gets out. And I think we're going to talk about the fact that on the one hand, it's impressive because it packs a lot in, but the narrative shape of this film is is weird. Yeah, I mean, that's true of all the Disney films so far, right? Even the ones that do have a plot. I think Snow White and Pinocchio both have their own, I don't want to say piercing issues, but maybe piercing idiosyncrasies that seem unusual to us watching today. And I think Dumbo is no different in that regard. So what I want to know from you, Ben, as usual, take me through your journey with Dumbo. When did you first watch it? When did you last watch it? Or have you never seen it at all? I've definitely seen it before. Uh, I don't have it, like, I don't have huge recollections of watching it loads when I was younger, but I've definitely seen Dumbo. And in fact, I've seen a bit of it quite recently. I think around the time that the live action remake came out, uh, was that 2018? Was that only last year? 2019, last year. Time is a total illusion at the moment. Uh, none of it makes sense. Uh, but yeah, when when the Tim Burton live action film came out last year, uh, I think around the same time they ended up showing the uh, original animation on TV at some point. And I think I sort of switched on for the last 20 minutes and, and watched through it. So there was definitely quite a lot of it that was fresh in my mind, especially as we've established it's only an hour long. So 20 minutes or so is about a third of the film. So I'd revisited the final chunk fairly recently but there was there was a lot that i didn't remember and i think what i'm really enjoying about all of this so far is that watching them in order you you understand dumbo in the context and in the continuity of everything else that disney's done so far so um yeah i'm pretty excited to to talk through this one what were your initial impressions this time around then so despite some major flaws and sort of sticky areas, which we'll get into, um, generally, I've really enjoyed this. I think this is maybe the most flat out enjoyable film so far with those major caveats to come. Um, yeah, just in terms of the vibrancy and the pace and the charm of it, it's a really confident feature. I think I, I, I did really enjoy Fantasia for what it was, but it did feel nice to be back in what you like about Disney is the stories and is the charm and the characters. And Dumbo has all of those things, even more so than, say, Snow White. Obviously, we talked about the fact that Snow White, there's a lot of dwarfs just prattin' about. Uh, <laughs> Pinocchio was very impressive, but super bleak. And Dumbo, as much as there is a lot of darkness in that story, it had a lot more of the warmth and the charm and the lovely narrative comfort blanket that you get from Disney. So I really enjoyed this one, but there are some very, very knotty areas uh, to, to get into as well, because it's not always the most easily enjoyable film. And what about you? What's your what's your sort of general feeling on on Dumbo before we get stuck in? Yeah, I like Dumbo. As you say, some pretty major caveats that we're going to cover, but I think that especially at a, you know, a svelte 64 minutes, it just whips by. It's an incredibly tight story. And the animation, as we'll talk about in a bit more detail, differs somewhat from their previous work. It's a bit more stripped back in a lot of ways, you know, visually and narratively. But I think that just kind of accentuates the things that are really good about it. 
So in terms of the context of what was happening around Dumbo, we spoke about last week that Fantasia didn't do massively well. Disney hasn't had as big a hit since Snow White. And the time is sort of approaching that America is going to start getting stuck into World War II, which we've alluded to is going to be a big turning point for for Disney uh, and the and the studio. So how does Dumbo factor into all of that? Where, where did this come in the wake of Fantasia? Was it a response to the fact that Fantasia didn't do that well to go back to a narrative and to keep it tight and colourful? Yeah, well, Dumbo was in production in one form or another during kind of the back half of Fantasia's production. So it wouldn't be entirely accurate to say that everything about this movie was a calculated effort to make something stripped back that's going to be able to recoup all of the money that Fantasia lost. But as it moved further into production and as Walt and uh, his brother Roy, who was kind of the money man, and the studio as a whole were dealing with the repercussions of the the kind of huge financial loss that was Fantasia, there were decisions made there were kind of orders given down to make this cheap, make this quick and make this the kind of film that people are actually going to go and want to see in their droves. Wow. I mean, it's interesting you saying the the phrase there, uh, make it fast and make it cheap, because I can see that in a lot of ways, Dumbo is a more obvious crowd pleaser. And I, I sort of guess in a lot of ways, it's maybe less ambitious compared to Snow White, where they were starting from absolutely nothing. Pinocchio was such a huge leap from there. Maybe it doesn't have quite the same intricacy and sort of invention factor that must have made those both very expensive projects. But at the same time, it doesn't feel faster, cheap. Maybe that's because we look at it now as like, it's Dumbo. Dumbo wasn't just like, I was about to say tossed off. That doesn't feel right. Dumbo wasn't tossed off. Uh, but it was. It doesn't feel like it was just sort of created on the fly. But um, On the fly? Well, hey. hey, did that and I didn't even know it. I mean, well, one thing that's really interesting here is that in the narrative features that we've had so far in Snow White and Pinocchio, they were both based on fairy stories or existing folk tales. How significant was it that Disney with Dumbo was starting to fabricate their own stories? Because there are sort of things floating around out there about what Dumbo may have been based on, like a particular real life elephant story. But it's not the same. It's not based on a sort of specific story in the way that the previous narrative films are. Ooh, or well, is it? It, it, oh. it, it? it kind of is. Well, it pretty much is, actually. Um, I'm not sure what you're referring to with your real-life elephant story, and I want to hear more about that. <laughs> this may have been something that I saw for like two seconds on Wikipedia and didn't read properly, but it was a picture of a, an actual elephant called Jumbo, and uh, I don't think it had particularly abnormally large ears, but... Um, <laughs> Who knows? So so tell me more then. So this was based on something. It was based on a book, which at the time that Disney acquired it had not been published. Oh, and yeah. then in part due to its acquisition by Disney, wasn't really published in any kind of mass market form. No way. Yeah, it's a, it's a fairly interesting story, but I'll go through it as quickly as I can. It was based on a book by a pair of authors called Helen Aberson and Harold Pearl. And this was kind of conceived as a children's picture book, but it was no ordinary picture book. It was... Um, created as kind of the pilot project for a new form of literary technology, the roller book. The roller book, like Rolodex or like roller as in like roller skates. 
I'm gonna go with roller decks on that okay. one. It was this box that kind of looked like a Game Boy, like a small handheld box <laughs> with a screen, and it had a handle on the end, and you would turn the handle and it would there was like a scroll in the middle of the box that you could see through the screen, and the scroll would gradually unfurl, right. allowing you to see the words and the pictures. So that was kind of Dumbo the book was acquired for that. And then there's very little evidence that these roller books ever made it to the mass market but during this time disney somehow got his hands on a copy of it or on a copy of the proofs for it or something like that there's various different stories about how that came about and was like this would make a great animated feature right and then it ended up getting published as a picture book while Dumbo was in production. It had a very small print run, and then it was completely eclipsed by the Disney film. So that's why most people don't know that Dumbo was actually based on a book. Maybe uh, Disney heard about the roller roller book thing and was like, after the whole Fantasound debacle, was just like, let's not invent new things. We we don't need to reinvent <laughs> yeah. the book. Uh, that's that's interesting. So I bet those copies of the picture book, if there was one print run of those picture books and then it was effectively wiped off the face of the earth uh god they must be worth an absolute bomb these days yeah i haven't even been able to find any images from them i think some of like the original artwork exists in like an archive somewhere but i haven't even been able to find like actual pictures of these books so yeah they seem to be very rare (laughs) so considering um there's very little out there even about this book do we know how closely the film hues to the story of the book is does does dumbo fly in the book is it about him having big ears or is it just about an elephant in the circus um he's got big ears he can fly it unfolds slightly differently he's best friends with a robin instead of a mouse and the robin takes him to an owl called dr i hoot which is fantastic (laughs) that's a great lost disney character if there ever was one dr hoot and he actually trains him to fly using his ears as wings So it's slightly different to the film where he discovers it by accident. But like a lot of the stories that Disney adapts, this was a very uh, thin on the ground narrative and they kind of, their writers, their story guys fleshed it out with new characters and new ideas for animated sequences. So I'm sure you've got all sorts of other things to tell us about the differences between the book and the film when we get to Discarded a little bit later. But for now, should we should we get stuck into the the main meat of Dumbo, which again feels wrong. He's an elephant. He's sentient. He's not <laughs> uh, should we get stuck into the, the meat of the story? Yeah, okay, let's go. So Having said that, before we actually get stuck into the film itself, I feel like one of the biggest talking points happens these days. If you're watching on Disney Plus, it comes up before you even press play on the film, which is uh, when you load up the film page on Disney Plus in the introduction paragraph. This is one, I think the first one really so far that has come up and said contains outdated cultural depictions. And boy, does Dumbo contain some pretty egregious, outdated cultural depictions. Let's sort of break some of this down for a couple of minutes. Yeah, so when we talk about this, I'd quite like to start with the scene that actually comes, which more or less the last scene in the film, which is the most, well, one of the most well-known scenes in the film, full stop, but definitely the most well-known example of, let's just call it what it is, which is racism in the film. There is a lot of debate, especially among people who loved this film growing up, especially among you know white people or non-black people who love this film growing up, who don't see what the problem is with the scene in question, which is the scene in which Dumbo and Timothy the Mouse run into a group of crows 
who are effectively African-American stereotypes, effectively minstrel stereotypes, who sing a song about how they do not believe an elephant can fly and then have a change of heart and help to teach Dumbo how to fly. Yeah, so obviously we're skipping sort of pretty much right to the end of the film here, but it felt right to maybe address this up front because, like I said, Disney flags it up before you even start watching the film. So uh, yeah, it feels like this is one of the most obvious examples that come up when people talk about there being these pretty overtly racist characterizations in especially the early Disney films. And it's I think what struck me as really strange about the crows scene is that it it felt so unnecessary. The crows come in at a really weird point. They come in so close to the end and they're basically there to push Dumbo through as a character to to his ultimate destiny of, of flying. But there feels like so many other ways that you could have done that. And I think one of the things that is so egregious about it is that, like you said, they are minstrel stereotypes and they are there basically just as props. They're there just to be sort of comedic figures based so much on very sort of ugly, outdated stereotypes. Yeah, it just feels really unnecessary. It's, it's impossible not to watch it now and just think, I wish you'd found like any other way or introduce any other characters because Dumbo and, and Timothy Q. Mouse, they wake up in the tree uh, having had their tripping balls moment on uh, the Elephants on Parade sequence and they wake up in the tree uh, because presumably Dumbo has flown them up there and when they wake up there the crows are and that's how that sort of scene starts to unfold yeah I mean even down to the pun of of the crows and Jim Crow it's just like ah yeah it's it, it feels difficult to watch today yeah well as is often pointed out the lead crow is called jim crow on the model sheets and in the original um publicity material so that's that's kind of there in the text even though his name isn't mentioned in the film that's mainly kind of a behind the scenes joke i guess you could say on the part of the animators but it's still something that is there and exists and people have often brought it up as one of the reasons why this scene is racist another reason of course is that the lead crow let's call him jim crow was voiced by a white man oh really yeah 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 so the other crows the kind of sidekick crows were voiced by black singers uh, one of whom james basket would play the lead role of uncle remus in the other most famous racist disney movie song of the south a few years later but the lead crow is voiced by cliff edwards who uh, you will know ben for voicing jiminy cricket in pinocchio oh, okay um who was also a noted blackface performer right it wasn't all he did but it was one of the things that he did and there were other black performers involved in the production. Um, a pair of black dancers called the Jackson Brothers recorded reference footage for Ward Kimball, who animated the sequence. But, you know, the inclusion of, like in any old-timey Hollywood production, the inclusion of African-American performers in the production of these films does not excuse their depiction of black characters. Yeah, and the sort of lead one among them, the one who gets the most lines, was voiced by a white man doing vocal blackface in, in that specific... Um example so there have been arguments made uh, as to the point that this sequence is not as offensive as many people would take it to be both white critics white reviewers and some african-american voices and chief among them Whoopi goldberg and also floyd norman who was disney's first black animator although he didn't actually um start working at the studio until after this film was made so some of these people have argued that first and foremost the crows are some of the most likable and enjoyable characters 
in the film, which, you know, personally, I don't think that that negates the fact that their qualities that make them entertaining are still drawn from nefarious stereotypes and are still drawn from the traditions of minstrel shows, etc. And there's also an argument that the fact that the crows are aligned with black people and therefore aligned with this marginalized community lends pathos to the fact that they eventually sympathize with Dumbo's plight as a marginalized character himself. Again, I don't lend this a great deal of credence because first of all, there isn't anything in the text to suggest that these crows come from a marginalized community. It's all extra textual. And while it's a connection that people are perfectly able and free to make, it's not encoded in the text per se. Um, But then also that means that these black characters have been put in the film purely to and and that their marginalization of real life african-americans is being used in the film to accentuate the plight of a let's not call them white but let's call them non-african-american coded character Mm. which is problematic in itself i mean you were talking about the um yeah the fact that that is basically extra textual there is another scene in the film that we're going to talk about for a couple of minutes before we uh, head into the rest of the plot, which I had completely not remembered at all. I had no recollection of, of this scene. Um, and I think it's interesting that when people think about the overt racism in Dumbo, what springs to mind for a lot of people are the crows rather than a scene that occurs pretty early on in the film in which you have a bunch of well literally faceless black and brown figures who are putting up the big top tent along with the animals in the rain in the pouring rain uh, they are described as roustabouts which was a term that i wasn't aware of and they sing effectively a slave song about the fact that they are happy slaves who are happy to do the work and that they throw all their money away and they're not educated but they're happy-hearted and they do an honest job and it's it's really ugly it's i had like i said i had no recollection of that scene and i was really shocked by it when it came up and it was. I was thinking about the framing of it. I guess one of the things about it is, that feels so icky is that the way that they are animated, they're not seen particularly far away, but they are not given faces. They are just these figures, um, this amorphous group uh, who are there to be slaves, and they are given no particular identity or agency or anything. There is an, uh, an argument that I would not agree with that uh, again, they are there slogging away in the pouring rain with the animals, with the circus animals who are also basically being held in the circus against their will. And they are all being exploited basically by the circus environment. But that is deeply problematic in its own way because then you are aligning these black and brown figures with literal animals. And that the only way you could sympathize the, with them is that through the lens of these animal characters, which feels awful in its own way. Yeah, I mean, it's very, the whole we're happy-hearted roustabouts refrain. I mean, it's it's a reasonably kind of dark song, and I think one could argue that it's kind of ironic or sarcastic and it's trying to draw attention to their plight, but it's hard to get away from we're happy-hearted roustabouts you know, in the context of other lines, like when other folks have gone to bed, we slave until we're almost dead. If it is supposed to be 
kind of sarcastic. It's incredibly ill-judged and it's very hard to watch and very hard to listen to. And it's actually very similar to one of the arguments made about Song of the South, which is that that film depicts recently freed slaves who are still being paid, presumably, very small amounts of money to work on plantations. And it depicts them kind of being very happy and very pally with the white people who are on the plantation. So it's it's this idea that we're taking these people who are being forced to slave away until they're almost dead, but they're happy about it. It's very misguided. It's very... Um, it's racist. Yeah, it's racist. And it it's... I mean, there's something about the crows that draws all the attention. I think it's because the crows... Like, when I watched Dumbo when I was a kid, I loved the crows. I didn't recognize the associations that were there. I had no idea. I just saw these fun, entertaining, singing characters. And I think that's why people remember the crows. And I think that's also why people react strongly to the mere suggestion that that scene could be construed as racist. No one remembers the roustabouts because it's not a particularly entertaining scene. It comes right at the start of the film. It's all kind of shrouded in darkness. No one remembers it. And I think all of this discussion about the crows is rendered moot because it's not by half the most racist thing in the film. I mean, when Disney Plus was about to launch, there was talk, I don't know if it was rumours or if it was substantiated in any way whatsoever, that the crows scene was going to be excised from Dumbo when it went up and that didn't end up being the case but there was no talk about the roustabout scene if they took out the crows scene they would have to take out the roustabouts because it's it's drastically worse and then you'd be left with like a 40 minute long movie i mean as you say that's even within the case of placing those scenes in the context of each other within this one film you mentioned briefly song of the south and we won't dwell on it and we're not going to cover it on the podcast because it's partially live action it's not one of their animated films and obviously it's completely out of circulation it's you can't get it anymore uh, it's not available on disney plus for for good reason um, but when did that come out was that quite a bit further down the line or were these films being made around the same time because it does feel like there is connective tissue there in in that portrayal yeah so song of the south came out four years after song of the south came out in 1946 and um, so i don't know for a fact but given the length of the production process in a lot of these movies i would imagine that that was at least swimming around in walt and some of the animators heads when they were making this and obviously you've got the connective tissue of james basket as one of the crows and there's uncle remus and several of the animated characters in song of the south and i think some of the characterizations of the crows have a lot in common with the characterizations of the animated animal characters in song of the south as well the the, the two are kind of connected in that way but you know if you were to watch song of the south i think it will become apparent why that film has remained so controversial and why that's the film that disney have chosen to lock away forever and dumbo is still the kind of put it out there unedited for people to watch i think there is a big difference between how quite how pernicious these films are but it doesn't mean that dumbo is easy to watch from a from a contemporary perspective Okay, so it felt sort of important to discuss those things up front because they are a major part of the film, especially as you watch it today. And like we said, overall, those scenes together make up about 10 minutes of the film, which in a 60-odd minute film is a, a considerable chunk. But let's talk about some of the other stuff going on in Dumbo. So if we go right back to the beginning, it begins with the storks, with the delivery of all the cute little baby animals the stalks flying through the air and the first bit in my notes is 
there are some really effective rain effects in the sky. Uh, it feels like a sort of nice little technological leap again for, for Disney. The storm as the stalks fly through the air. Oh, that's nice of you to say that, Ben. I, I, I said on behalf of Disney. <laughs> no, but it, it's interesting to me because this is considered to be, it's said to be a film in which as I kind of said before, the studio were dialing back on a lot of the excesses of um, Pinocchio and Fantasia to kind of keep the budget manageable. And one of the things that they almost completely did away with was what you would call effects animation. So things like Pinocchio's underwater sequence or some of the fire-based sequences in Fantasia. But yeah, you do open with that fairly impressive shot of the raindrops going past the stalks as they fly towards um, what I also think is significantly a kind of cartoon map of the united states with all of the states labeled and with florida in big letters so you get that fairly realistic opening shot and then you move into cartoon world in a way that we haven't in any of these certainly not the narrative disney features yeah while i was watching that i thought oh this is a really again a really interesting stylistic flourish and they're sort of mixing things up in the styles of this yeah very cartoony map it's literally a map like you said it's got the names of the states written on them but in hindsight, now knowing, like you said, that they were sort of making it effectively fast and cheap, that was probably a much easier thing for them to do to sort of half-heartedly draw this basic map of the states rather than to do something bigger and more intricate that you would maybe expect in, in the wake of Fantasia. I have a question for you here, Sam, and I don't know if you know the answer or not, but is this the origins of the idea of storks delivering babies? Was that an existing cultural trope or did Dumbo populate that? Okay, I'm going to have a quick Google, but I'm going to say definitely not. There's no way. (laughs) Because if... If this did originate in Dumbo, if if Disney came up with the idea of storks delivering babies, then that means when we get to the lasting legacy section of everything that came since, we are going to have to talk about the animated film Storks, (laughs) which is all about the insane system of storks delivering babies. Uh, Okay, well, I can say that Disney did not invent storks delivering babies. According to Dr. Google, the legend is very ancient but was popularised by a 19th century Hans Christian Andersen story. Hans Christian Andersen, that makes total sense that, again, they are cribbing from from sort of fairy tales and and folk tales. But I feel for a lot of people watching, this is maybe as a kid where you get the idea of storks delivering babies, everyone watching sort of these Disney films while we're all young. Yeah, it was one. It was something that I I think I had remembered that this is how Dumbo begins. But as I was as I was watching it, I was thinking, oh yeah, is is that where I got the idea of storks delivering babies? It's such a convenient answer for where babies come from. Did you recognise the voice of Mister Stork? By the way, I did not. I wasn't listening out for it. Where where will I have heard him before? Ah, uh, Ben, this is the first appearance in a Disney feature film from Sterling Holloway, who is possibly he has a shout at being the actor who's been in the most Disney film. And because he was, Winnie the Pooh is probably his most famous role. He's the Cheshire Cat in Alice in Wonderland. Mm. And he is Roquefort the Mouse in the Aristocats. And he is Car in the Jungle Book. He pops up all over the place. So it's an interesting little Disney milestone there. It's the first Sterling Holloway Disney film. Okay, you're going to have to keep pointing him out as as we go through. Sterling Holloway, that's a great name. It's a great name. Uh, the, the thing that struck me about this sequence of all the little baby animals being dropped off is we brought it up right at the beginning in Snow White, but good God, are these animals cute? Oh, they are so cutesy. It melts your heart right from the beginning. Uh, the, the, the giraffes and even the little baby tigers and oh, they're so cute. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful things. And I mean, Dumbo himself is just a 
he's just a gorgeous guy, right? Dumbo. Oh my god. Yeah. And it's so sad that moment where Mrs. Jumbo, she's like, Where's my baby? I didn't get a baby. Everyone else gets a baby, and she's she's sort of looking longingly. One thing that comes back throughout the film, they make a lot in a really great way of the image of a trunk and the the function of a trunk that it can be reaching out. That when Mrs. Jumbo doesn't have a baby dropped off, they use her trunk as she's reaching out of the bar, she's reaching out for this thing that she can't have or doesn't think that she gets to have. And that'll come back uh, a lot through mm. the rest of the film. But it's such a heartbreaking image of a trunk reaching in the little endy bit of the trunk. There's probably a, a proper word, the nostrilly bit. But they, it almost works like a hand, like a mitten, like grabbing and reaching out. It's so, oh, it hits you right in the feels. And I guess at this point, we're skipping around a bit, but we should also talk about Casey Jr., right? The train. Casey, he's coming down the track. Oh, he's coming. Because that the look of the anthropomorphized train and the picture book sort of view of the American continent, it like I said at the time as I was watching it, I was thinking, oh, this is a, a really playful way of, of portraying this. But it is also actually animation-wise a lot more simplistic than a lot of the animation we've seen in the other Disney films. So I think they sort of do a good job of probably dialing things back in terms of the difficulty of animation while still doing something interesting with it that it feels like they're doing something new right yeah the strictures of the budget kind of inspire creativity in a different way so they can't do the kind of luscious realistic environments and characters of snow white and pinocchio so that makes them turn their creativity in a different direction and they're going back to or kind of looking parallel towards closer to the art style of the mickey mouse shorts and the silly symphonies which are still being produced by different units at the studio while this is being made. So it's, it's let's look at these techniques that we've developed over here that we haven't really been using in our features because we've been striving towards realism. And let's see what other directions our creativity can take us in a more cartoonal aesthetic on a lower budget. Speaking of budgets, something that uh, comes up around this point in my notes is that I, presumably with the arrival of all the babies and of baby Jumbo Jr., I'm calling him Jumbo Jr. because it's only the bullies who call him Dumbo. Uh, it's a mean name. We shouldn't be calling him Dumbo. It's cruel. But when the babies arrive, the actual happy birthday song features in Dumbo. And that is a famously expensive song if you have to buy the rights for it. They must have had to pay for, for happy birthday. I'm, I'm surprised that Disney was splashing around the cash on the happy birthday song because it's only recently in the last few years that you don't have to pay to use it anymore, I don't think, in the way that you used to. I mean, once again, Ben, I don't have a direct answer for this. <laughs> and I, I don't think my colleague, Dr. Google, is going to be able to help me with this one. I can tell you that the budget for Dumbo, we were looking at around $800,000, which was about a third of what was spent on Fantasia, about half of what was spent on Snow White. So yeah, let's just say that ah, 20% of that went on the Happy Birthday song. <laughs> so they were even more restrained in what they could do with the animation because they just had to have that in there. You know so much about these films, so much about all the history, and I'm like, do they have to pay for Happy Birthday? I'm asking you all the stupid stuff that you obviously won't know. So let, let's get back to the plot. And uh, yeah, after briefly thinking that she's not going to get a baby, Mrs. Jumbo does get little baby Jumbo Jr., adorable, super cute, uh, immediately apparent that he has very big ears. Not that that's a bad thing, but all those mean lady elephants. It feels like overall, this is a story about bullying and about exploitation. And 
even within the sort of animal factions themselves, Dumbo is immediately, sorry, Jumbo Jr., as I'm calling him, is immediately turned on. And it's it's sort of heartbreaking that as soon as he arrives, he's just an object of ridicule, even within his own social circle. I mean, that is prejudice for you there. And it's it's irrational as well, right? Like, I don't get it. I don't, I don't get why the big ears is something to be mocked. I, and as well, I mean, elephants have big ears. We know this. <laughs> African elephants have, I mean, here's some biology, Ben. I'm not a doctor of biology, but let's go. <laughs> African elephants have giant ears. And I think that's something to do with they use them as fans, right? Mm. To keep themselves cool. I might be making that up. The elephants in this film are Indian elephants who have small ears, right? And that is something I learned when I was a very small child. And I don't think zoology has moved beyond that point yet. That's my, I think that's the deal. So perhaps, and this could be a reach, but perhaps... Jumbo Jr.'s father, who we do not see, could be an African elephant. Right. And maybe that's why they're so prejudiced towards his big ears, because maybe she's been going outside of her direct breed of elephants to uh, to mate, to copulate. There is no copulation, Sam. It's just the storks. There is just probably, the storks. as we find out in the animated film Storks, it's a difficult time <laughs> in that factory. Uh, as much as all of the mean lady elephants turn on Jumbo Jr. immediately... Obviously, Mrs. Jumbo, she loves him. And one of the most heartwarming images in the whole film. There's a really interesting balance all the way through between these actually really sad and harsh situations and also the sheer warmth and love that Dumbo at times has and at times is denied. And one of the images that just stands out as being, again, it just melts my heart, is Mrs. Jumbo wrapping him up in his own ears as a baby, sort of wrapping up like it's a little blanket. Oh, it's so cute. Which makes it even more horrible then when after the awful roustabouts sequence once the big top is set up once the circus is open for business this little skinny asshole this little horrible boy comes up and starts grabbing the ears starts getting all up in jumbo genius grill this uh, that's a really upsetting sequence where he's being obviously he's being bullied by all of the other elephants and then when he's offered up for human entertainment he's also ridiculed and physically kind of tormented by this little shit this horrible boy very reminiscent of lampwick from pinocchio maybe a distant cousin or a kind of descendant perhaps of of the lampwick family oh and lampwick lived for mischief he would have been all about pulling the elephant ears and and it's so obviously you are siding with mrs jumbo in that moment of like leave him alone get away from him which makes it so much more distressing when the consequences for her rightfully kicking off and sort of chasing this little boy away is that she's whipped she is chained she is uh yeah held captive in her carriage and there's that horrible print on the outside that says danger mad elephant it's such a brutal phrase that is yeah that really gets you doesn't it danger mad elephant because we know we we know the real deal here and it's you know it, it's labeling her as mad when she's just when no she's just trying to protect our son it's 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 very effective isn't it and and you get the whole kind of pathetic fallacy there as well it, whenever you see that kind of caravan that she's locked up in it's always a kind of dark dismal day outside and she's not mad she's totally justified in, in her behavior like yeah as, yeah. as- as a as a mother, as a protector, as a, as a, a, an animal whose instinct it is to uh, protect her son, 
now you watch it and you're like, she's totally being gaslit. She's having this totally rational response to, to what's happening. And the use, mm. the, the labeling of that phrase mad, the, the way that she acts is in some way hysterical is, uh, yeah, it sucks. So obviously at that point in the plot, everything's getting pretty dark. Dumbo, or sorry, Jumbo Jr., cute as hell, but everyone is ripping the piss out of him all the time. Mrs. Jumbo is locked away. Everything's starting to get a bit bleak. And that's when we bring in the comic relief, which is Timothy Q. Mouse. He is effectively Jiminy Cricket 2.0, this small, diminutive stature character, talking animal character, who is there to be the comic relief and the sidekick to the hero in an overall pretty sad story. Do you like Timothy Q. Mouse? Is he is he your boy? I like Timothy Q. Mouse. He, I, he's not quite my boy, but he's he's a, he's a cool guy. He's cool as a cucumber. This kid, like, <laughs> I, I definitely when I watched it this time round, he's not a character who I keep going back to, you know, in my memories of the film, and he's not a character who's very widely merchandised. There's not many characters from this film apart from Dumbo himself who get like merchandised in the way that like the seven dwarfs do. And in the cases of the crows, that's for obvious reasons. But with Timothy Mouse, like, why not? He's a cool guy. I'm watching it back. I'm like, yeah, this guy's slick. He's got his kind of Brooklyn accent. He's got street smarts. Yeah, I'm down with Timothy. He's like the the cool dude's Jiminy Cricket. You, you, you feel the need for him in this plot. You can feel why tonally they, they wanted to have him in there. It's interesting you were saying that aside from Dumbo, very few of the characters here get merchandised. That's because there actually aren't that many characters. So many of them are mm. incidental side characters. So few of them have names even. So it's really only Jumbo Jr., Mrs. Jumbo, and Timothy Q. Mouse who actually really have names and full-on roles yeah. to play. Mr. Stork. Mr. Stork, obviously. Sorry. that uh, Apologies <laughs> for the Mr. Stork erasure. Uh, Casey Jr., the train. <laughs> yes, I mean, if you're having to plump for the train, there's the anthropomorphized <laughs> train so early on. That's a sign. Yeah, the fifth most prominent named character in the right. film is the train. Um, but the one thing that struck me as being quite similar to Jiminy Cricket with Timothy Q. Mouse is that obviously Jiminy Cricket is, he gets to playfully have this role of Pinocchio's conscience as somebody who talks to Pinocchio. And you get a sequence quite early on in Timothy Q. Mouse coming in, in which he basically sort of goes up to the head circus guy while he's asleep, whispering in his ear, hypnotizing him, speaking to his subconscious, trying to influence the fact that, that Dumbo is going to get his own part in the circus show. And I don't know, it's interesting. It felt like there was a link to me there between these little animal sidekick characters who play mind games with other mm. characters in in the story obviously in quite different ways but what i'm getting at is that timothy q mouse is just jiminy cricket 2.0 maybe not as good as jiminy cricket was yeah i mean that's it's it's the eternal debate isn't it timothy q mouse is or it? jiminy cricket it, yeah 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 all, all the uh, ben you wouldn't know on all the disney stand forums it's all timothy this and jiminy that but jiminy, <laughs> jiminy is jiminy, jiminy is <laughs> Jiminy and Jiminy, but Jiminy's history's winner, right? Yeah. Like Jiminy, I've said that so often it stopped sounding like a word. Jiminy Cricket has gone down in history as this classic Disney character. He's up there with your Mickey's and your Minnie's and your Donald's and the Pantheon. He even recurs in some of the other feature films we're going to watch. Um, Timothy Q. Mouse has been consigned to the pile of forgotten characters which i think is a great shame i don't think there's all that much of a gulf in how kind of likable and memorable these characters are 
the best thing is that obviously he he does come to to Jumbo Junior's aid, uh, even though he calls him Dumbo as well. Which is like, come on, man, you got to reclaim the name Jumbo Junior. <laughs> Whose side are you Whose on? Side are you on? He he is effectively on Dumbo's side because after speaking to the uh, the subconscious mind of the head circus guy, there's probably a name: the ringmaster, the ringleader. Well, yeah, we're calling them a ringmaster. <laughs> I've already used that word in the podcast. Why didn't Why didn't that word spring to mind? Uh, but Dumbo gets his big shot. He gets his own sort of starring moment in the show after that. And in one of the most spectacular sequences, it all goes absolutely tits up. That sequence where all of the lady elephants are sort of, it's like a tower of elephants. It's like a cheerleader tower of people, except they're all elephants and little Dumbo has to get himself to the top. And it all goes wrong, and all of the elephants fall down. They're swinging on the trapezes. They're chasing through the tent. Everything's falling down. I thought that was a great, great sequence. That felt like classic Disney to me. Yeah, it's, 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 there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of kind of different camera angles. There's some great kind of editing, if editing's the right word to use in animation. The way that it's kind of all cut together to heighten the tension and then to quicken the pace at the climax. At the climax, as Timothy keeps saying. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it is quite masterfully done and it is a kind of an example of the, the great filmmaking and the great understanding of filmmaking techniques that these animators had. Because there's real beats within that whole sequence. If It's almost like a, it's like an action sequence and you can feel all these little storytelling moments. I, I, I've mentioned it, but I particularly liked the elements that are sort of stuck on the trapeze. It, it's got a really nice playful feel to it in terms of what is and isn't physically possible in this reality, this sort of quite plastic reality. Um, but the consequences for that of everything going wrong and the, sh- the the tent falling down of everything falling apart is this yeah really horrible thing for for Dumbo in that he gets told he is no longer an elephant he is stripped of his identity Ooh. of his not just his role in the circus but of yeah his entire physical being he's told he's no longer an elephant and whenever he appears in in the circus show later in the film he is a clown he is obviously still physically an elephant but he's there to be a clown in his sad clown makeup and to be an object of ridicule it's uh it's heartbreaking yeah they're really just piling on the heartbreak piling on the devastation dumbo just having sorry jumbo junior thank you just having terrible (laughs) time of it after terrible time of it until you get to the most heartbreaking sequence in the film. And I'm just going to go and say the most heartbreaking sequence, definitely in a Disney film thus far, right? The Baby Mine song. Oh, Baby Mine. We, we, like, we're not quite there yet, but that is... It's... Oh, I'm, 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 we, we, we'll get there in a few minutes because I need to build up to that sequence. I need to build up my okay. emotional Okay, I'm war. sorry. Because after everything goes wrong, he's told he's no longer an elephant. And it feels like from then on the rest of the film takes on an even more sinister tone. At the beginning of the film, even while Dumbo or Jumbo Jr. is being bullied by the other elephants, the whole thing has quite a lighthearted, colourful feel to it. It has quite a bouncy tone to it. From this moment onwards, everything gets a bit more sinister and more off-kilter. We have Dumbo being part of that routine where he is the clown, where it's even quite nightmarish the way that it's animated. These almost inhuman clown figures the sort of clown people but they look cartoonish they don't seem to look or move in a way that real humans do that some of the other human characters Mm. in the story do 
everything gets cranked up a notch and you feel his terror when he's up on the top of that burning tower having to jump it's awful enough that he has to jump onto the little trampoline thing even worse that it's not a trampoline and he's there to get splattered in this giant custard pie vat um and um, and obviously he is the laughing stock he is the punchline of that whole routine and it goes down an absolute storm everybody loves it it's a great success and all of the clowns go and celebrate that success they are toasting each other and they are toasting to Dumbo saying you're a success but Dumbo doesn't get to be part of that success he is just the punchline he's left out in the cold he doesn't get to be part of the celebration he's the thing that makes that routine special even if the butt of the joke is him and he doesn't get any of the rewards from it yeah it's I mean you really do get the sense that there's a real disconnect between the human world and the animal world in this film. I mean, this is the first Disney feature that's really set in the animal world. It's the first Disney feature where we are primarily aligned with the animal characters, even though there are animals with personalities, so to speak, in Snow White and Pinocchio. But here we are aligned with the animals. They are the characters we're following. They're the characters we're sympathizing with. And therefore there's a real disconnect created between them and the humans. So Dumbo is not only ostracized within the elephant community, uh, such as it is, but the animals are ostracized and looked down upon and seen as less than human, which of course they are less than human because they're animals, but within the context of this film, they are people. They are more people. They have more personality than the humans. So when you get the clown saying one of my favorite lines in the film, ah, oh, elephants don't have feelings. That's like, you know, it's funny, but it also cuts deep because we know that they do because the film has been training us for its entire runtime to be incredibly attuned to the feelings of elephants. And the, the feelings of Jumbo Jr. at this moment, this is him at his lowest point. And Timothy Q. Mouse sees what he needs. He needs his mum's love. And so he takes Dumbo over to, to Mrs. Jumbo's enclosure. And this, now we've got to the baby mine sequence, Sam. And oh, just again, I was talking before about the how great the use of the elephant trunks is here how expressive they are this reaching this longing and you feel that the absolute most in the baby mind sequence mrs jumbo's trunk reaching through the bars her scooping jumbo jr up and rocking him back and forth and that song that lullaby it is gorgeous it's it's probably the best song for me that we've had so far in any of the films yeah take that when you better than when you wish upon a star when you wish upon a star can do one it's all about baby mine (laughs) and it is the most heartbreaking sequence we've seen so far right something that disney definitely would become known for is heart-wrenching scenes like this often involving a parent and a child which is going to make you cry Um, But this is the first real example of that. Obviously, Bambi, the next film we'll look at, is perhaps more notorious. But I think, and we'll see what you think next week, I think Dumbo's more effective. I do want to shout out one guy in particular. Um, I was going to shout him out last week because of his work on Fantasia. But I've got to mention a guy called Bill Teitler, who is, for my money, he's like my favourite old-school Disney animator. Uh, Probably my favourite Disney animator of all time. And he animated... Well, he was the lead animator on all of the elephants in this movie. And so obviously in particular, Jumbo Jr. and Mrs. Jumbo. And, you know, he also animated Chernobog and Fantasia. He animated Stromboli and Pinocchio. And he did Grumpy and Snow White. So when you put those characters together, you can see this is a guy who his kind of areas of expertise were like wit, 
when you look at Chernobog and Stromboli, right. you really feel the weight of those characters. You feel them pushing themselves around the space in which they're in. And he's also excellent at eliciting emotion. So he designed this kind of slow development of Grumpy's character in Snow White. And he's also behind all of the heart-wrenching uses of, of the trunk, etc. in Dumbo. And interestingly, he said, you know, that there are reports of them studying elephants um, to help them capture the way that elephants move. But if you read interviews with Titler, he always says that he wasn't thinking about elephants. He was thinking about kind of his own relationship with his own children. And it's bringing that, you know, that that's the kind of thing that a method actor would say. The animators at this point are bringing, really bringing the techniques of, of acting, of live acting into these films in order to inform particularly the emotions of these characters and it really works it right? totally works yeah like you said that the it is the real the human emotion that comes through so strongly i think that's why the baby mind sequence is so effective and talking of effective sequences what comes after baby mine flipping heck this is the other thing one of the other things that everyone remembers about dumbo which is the pink elephants on parade so after dumbo or jumbo junior has had his reunion with mrs jumbo through the bars uh he goes and at timothy q mouse's suggestion drinks from a pail of water that has been spiked with the champagne that the celebrating clowns have, have been drinking and it gets real trippy real quick the pink elephant sequence is even more out there than you probably remember it is full-on psychedelic it is a sort of five minute it's a five minute fantasia sequence effectively isn't it like turned mm. up to 11 with some genuinely really unsettling imagery this is the point that obviously it's such a stylistic sequence but the the animation becomes so elastic here everything is so moldable everything is un, unnatural and uncanny and out of shape and being bent into different proportions you have those really creepy elephants with that are different colors and different patterns and ones that have crazy long necks and the most freakish one is the 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 sort of it's like a man made of evil elephant faces <laughs> uh, an elephant man you might say even david lynch would have been like freaked out by some of this stuff right yeah it's incredible i mean i have a couple of questions i wanted to ask you about mm -hmm. this ben first of all i don't drink i've never been drunk i wanted to ask you how accurate is this to your experiences of drinking alcohol if you're experiencing this from drinking, you've either had like 90% proof absinthe or something, or you're drinking something that has been spiked with something else because no one has ever like had a little glass of champagne or very watered down champagne and seen the things that Dumbo sees in this moment. It's, it's, I, uh, yes, I, I'm at pains to tell you, Sam, that this is not an accurate representation of what being drunk feels like. All right, excellent answer. Question two, what is your favourite iteration of the pink elephants? What's your favourite image from this, or the most memorable image from this to you? I think maybe what the ones that are the really trippy colours. There are sort of three on the screen at a time, and they have one of them has like horizontal stripes that I think are like purple and orange, and that was just colorful rather than yeah outright terrifying because there's that weird one oh least favorite i've got a least favorite for you okay if, that's, uh, if that fits the bill and that is the belly dancing elephant which then oh, yeah. becomes this weird big eyeball in the middle of the screen for some reason <laughs> yeah that's that's that was my number three is the eyeball <laughs> oh you got a ranking yeah just just the solo eyeball in the middle of the screen which pauses there for just seconds 
And my, my guess at that would be the only real influence that's spoken about repeatedly for this sequence was Dali. And so I think that's a reference to Shion Andalou, the short film that Dali did with Bunuel. That's the only possible explanation I can think of it. <laughs> it might be way <laughs> out there. Um, my second favorite is the kind of silhouettes that you get of the elephants doing ballet and then later ice skating, where it suddenly becomes briefly very serene and beautiful and kind of Fantasia-esque. I was going to say that was that was my point. I was going to say there were a couple of points in this sequence that felt quite Fantasia to me, one of which was the the elephant ballet. And I think we spoke about last week how they were using reference footage of actual ballet dancers mm. to create correct ballet moves. It felt, again, like they were doing that here, that um, it was interesting seeing them take an elephant and make it look realistically like uh, it was doing ballet. Uh, the other thing that felt very Fantasia is that you get an elephant throwing lightning Ah, yeah, and okay. in Fantasia last week, in the Greek myth segment, you had Zeus in the sky sort of casually tossing lightning bolts over his shoulder. So yeah, there are a couple of bits in here that made me think specifically of Fantasia. So what's your number one? Come on, put us out of our misery. Our number one's the, the big elephant guy made of smaller elephant heads. It's no, it's no contest. I'm not, I know we've already covered that guy, but he is, he's excellent. So it gets really trippy at that point. It's a memorable sequence for a reason. And once it's all over, obviously we've discussed the crows, so we'll sort of skip over the crows. But this is the point where there is nine minutes of the film left at this point, and there is still a lot of plot to cover. And if we're talking about the weird sort of narrative shape of Dumbo, this is one of my criticisms of it as a film now. The whole film basically stops for a few minutes for the pink elephant sequence, but at the same time, this ending feels pretty rushed to me. One of the big defining things about Dumbo is it's the little elephant with the big ears and he can fly. And the flying is like the final couple of minutes of the film. That's it. And it's sort of an awkward introduction to the flying, I think, that it's like, oh, they wake up in a tree and the only way he can have got there is if they'd have flown up. And that's how they work out that, that Dumbo can fly. There was something about that that <laughs> I think if there were studio notes these days, it would be like, you can't just put in the, in the last five minutes. Oh, yeah, he can fly. <laughs> it comes out kind of out of nowhere. Well, okay, here's my take on that. There are no wrong answers in this class, obviously, but here's my take on that. I think it's significant that Dumbo has his realisation that he can fly or that he flies for the first time, let's say, subconsciously during the Pink Elephant sequence, right? Because it might seem like it comes out of nowhere or that it's just kind of a random excuse for some kind of intricate, surreal animation. But actually, maybe it's relevant that he flies for the first time while he's having this hallucination, having this dream of these pink elephants who are elephants who all look different. They all look different from each other. Any one of them would be ostracized from the elephant herd in the circus for, you know, looking more like a camel than an elephant or being a giant <laughs> eyeball or whatever, or being made of lots of smaller constituent elephants, you know? These are all kind of individual, unusual elephants, and they're all defying the laws of physics in a really cartoony way. Um, that goes beyond any of the other kind of gentle cartoonal qualities that we see elsewhere in the film, like with the clowns. These elephants can do anything. So maybe that's the realisation that Dumbo has. Maybe these two things are linked in somewhere. Right. So it's it's his entire horizons of what is physically possible for him as an elephant are blown wide open yeah. while he's tripping on champagne. And at the end, he's like, I can fly. That is an interesting justification. Ah, thank you. Now, did this remind you of then the Pinocchio nose conundrum that we had when we're talking about Pinocchio? That's what people remember 
but it's such a brief part of the film. The thing that I will grant is that, of course, it's the thing that's memorable because when Dumbo realizes he can fly and when he harnesses that ability, it gives you this really triumphant ending. You feel the weight of that moment that he has overcome all of the the bullies. He has his way out. He can fly. He becomes the hit of the circus. He wins his sort of, he doesn't win his freedom, but he wins uh, a much better quality of life for himself and for his mum. He saves the circus. The audiences are wowed by him. So it sends you out on such a high that you can see that being the thing that people remember when they finish the film. But it's weird as you're watching it that you have to wait so long for it to to come around. Mm. He takes revenge on his enemies as well, Ben. Don't forget that. It takes special time to go around spraying everybody with peanuts, etc. Those elephants soon change their tune as well. In the last scene when Dumbo's riding on his special carriage at the back of the train, all those elephants are singing his praises, literally. it's They, they really, they're so shallow. All it took was a peanut blast to the face for them to start fawning over Jumbo Jr. And the thing that I really like about that is that is Jumbo Jr. inviting them into the fancy carriage with him and his mum? Hell no, they get that super futuristic carriage all to themselves none of those horrible horrible mean old lady elephants allowed i just wanted to quickly mention the fact that in the kind of spray of headlines at the end of the film showing how famous dumbo is they build dumb bombers for defense they build planes designed and modeled after dumbo uh, for the u.s military that feels like uh, not the wisest choice <laughs> The whole point is that it's unbelievable because he's such an aerodynamic shape. Surely that is not transferable to uh, to planes. Maybe there is a lost Disney masterpiece that is the equivalent of Miyazaki's The Wind Rises, which is all about an obsession with creating planes. There we go. That sounds like a nice idyllic version of war. These sort of uh, elephant planes flying around, pinging peanuts at each other. Okay, so now we've finished our main discussion of the film, we've reached Discarded, the section of the show where we go back to the original tale that the filmmakers drew from, looking at all the weird or slightly strange things that Disney took one look at and thought, nah, we're not doing that. Sam, you alluded to uh, some bits earlier on of uh, this picture book that nobody really has access to anymore that Dumbo was seemingly based on. Uh, Is there anything more in the differences between Dumbo on the page and and Dumbo on the screen? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much as I said, there's a robin instead of a mouse and Dr. I Hoot the Owl instead of the crows. Um, There was no pink elephant in the book. I can say that for certain. So the, sorry, Dr. Hoot was in the place of the crows so not only are we stuck with the racist crows but we could have had the great owl doctor ah that's such a missed opportunity yeah i can say as well that there was a scene deleted from the film uh, which is on disney plus in storyboard form in which in order to explain why elephants are typically scared of mice timothy mouse tells a really quite harrowing story reminiscent of the rite of spring dinosaur sequence from Fantasia, in which he explains that back in dinosaur times, elephants were tiny and mice were huge and gigantic and as big as stegosauruses and used to torture the elephants. So, I mean, it gets quite dark. There's dark stuff on screen, but I think the darkest thing was left off. Maybe that's where the Princess Bride's rodents of unusual size came from. (laughs) That sounds like exactly it. So there's not much else then in in the original tale. Uh, So as for the film itself, what did critics say at the time? Was, Was Dumbo a critical hit? Yeah, it was a huge hit. People loved it. So I've got some quotes here, one from Variety, 
right? He's saying, while it doesn't compare in production or cost with some previous Disney features, Dumbo certainly rates in the important brackets from an entertainment standpoint. Man, people used to write weirdly in the past, <laughs> didn't they? Uh, in the New York Times, affecting, for some reason, the voice of a circus ringmaster for the whole review, writes, Ladies and gentlemen, step right this way and see the most genial, endearing, and completely precious cartoon feature film ever to emerge from the magical brushes of Walt Disney's wonder-working artists. So people loved it, and I think the important threads to pick out in these reviews were people noticed it wasn't as high in terms of production value as the previous features, but they liked it nonetheless. And... It kind of brings back to what you were saying right when we started, where you kind of compared this to, like, this is how you envision Disney in a lot of ways. The kind of cute talking animals, that's classic Disney for you, and it's taken us three movies to get here. <laughs> well, a lot of the critics were saying the exact same thing, except their point of reference were the Mickey Mouse cartoons. Right. It was like, this is the the charming kind of talking animal style of Disney that we fell in love with in those shorts. Um, So we're glad to see that he's done it in a feature-length format. Dumbo was almost... Well, actually, this is a very interesting fact, to be quite honest, Ben, if I do say so myself. (laughs) Dumbo was going to be on the cover of Time magazine. Whoa, huge Um, deal. Yeah, that's how big the film was. They were going to name him Mammal of the Year (laughs) on the cover of Time magazine, right? But something else happened. Something else bigger happened that necessitated the cover of Time magazine, Ben. Pearl Harbor was invaded. Oh, I was about to say there was another mammal. There was an even better mammal. (laughs) An even better mammal. Pearl Harbor was invaded. So this is, we we were saying before that America getting involved in the war is a a sort of turning point for the Disney company. So this is kind of when all of that is starting to kick off. Yeah, this is it. As we'll see starting next week, there were a lot of events, momentous events happening inside the Disney studio and also, of course, in the world at large that would have a big effect on the kind of films that were able to make and release. And yeah, it all started with Pearl Harbor and that is, I think, very apt that Pearl Harbor is what superseded Dumbo on the cover of Time magazine. So he didn't get his cover star moment, but the critics loved him. What about the box office? Did people turn out in their droves to go and see Dumbo, the amazing flying elephant? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to get exact figures for this. The figures that I was looking at show that it didn't make quite as much money as Pinocchio, but it was drastically cheaper. It was, you know, it was about a third of the cost. So it made a lot of money back in profits. In some ways, this is as significant a film as Snow White in terms of the history of Disney as a movie making studio this is what allowed them to continue this gave them the momentum to push through with bambi um and unfortunately that was kind of ground to a halt by world war ii but this rescued a film studio basically without dumbo they might not have made any of the other features that were loved to do okay so the critics loved it the audiences loved it what did ben travis think like I said at the beginning, I, for the most part, really enjoyed this. For me, it was generally the most entertaining film that we've watched so far by sort of current standards. Obviously, the major caveats are those two incredibly racist scenes that we addressed in some detail. Obviously, it's not just that they are egregiously racist. It's that as you're watching it now, it's it's not entertaining to watch those things. I mean, I think it's right the way that they handle it, that they put the disclaimers up, but they present it in historical context of this is what the film is. Those secret Sequences, uh, they can't help but make me not like the film as much as I would if they 
weren't there. Uh, I think my only other real criticism, uh, as we came up with as we were talking about the film, is yeah, this slightly weird pacing that the film sort of zigs and zags and major things come in in the last few minutes and it's sort of all tied up pretty conveniently and kind of out of nowhere. But largely, as you said, I said, this is the Disney that we know and love. This is cute talking animals. It's a really vibrant style. I think the the cheaper but more playful animation style really works. It doesn't feel like anything is lost. Um, maybe the, the animators would have felt differently. But as a viewer, I think it's really entertaining. It's loads more fun than Pinocchio. Even though Snow White is a classic Disney princess film, this still feels more typically Disney. So mm. I really enjoyed it. I would give it four stars. Yeah, so for me, again, as I always say, I kind of struggle to divorce looking at it as a historical document from looking at it as a piece of entertainment. But I think this film ticks the entertainment box more than any of the other ones we've looked at. It's, I would say, the funniest, the most fun. It's also the most emotional. It's it's going to push you to that kind of teary place in a way that the other ones didn't really. But again, there's this caveat of the hugely problematic, you know, full-on racist scenes. So I don't like the attitude that, oh, well, it, it was a different time. I don't like that attitude because that implies that everyone was just okay with it. When in fact, if you look back, everyone wasn't okay with it. It's just that as a society, we've started listening to those voices more, right? Mm. Like there will have been plenty of people at the time who thought that this was as problematic as we find it mm. now. It's just that, you know, there were not black film critics working at major publications at the time who could have put in the public record what they thought of this mm. film. Having said that, my attitude with something like this is to look at it as a historical document and, you know, to try and evaluate it as a whole without necessarily taking those things into account. But I also recognize that I'm coming from a position of privilege and being able to do that and being able to divorce my reaction to those scenes from the, you know, rating in air quotes that I'm going to give it as a whole. So kind of as a film, I really want to give it five stars, but then that kind of implies that I think it's a perfect film which it isn't. It's clearly not a perfect film. But I don't know if I can say I'll take one star off because it's racist, because then that's like I'm saying that, oh, racism, that's worth one star. So I don't know. Call it a five slash a zero. A five with caveats. Yeah, yeah, okay. So now it's time for the part of the show we call Lasting Legacy, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. In the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies, and more, there's a whole universe for each character. So Sam, what is the lasting legacy of Dumbo? Obviously, we've mentioned it before but there is this is the first time we've come to one of the live action remakes which is last year tim burton did the, the live action dumbo yeah this is the first one that got a live action remake what do you think of the live action remake ben just very briefly i have only seen it once but i really enjoyed it i actually reviewed it for empire magazine and i gave it four stars and i get a bit of stick for having given it four stars because i think a lot of other people on the team didn't necessarily agree with it but um for me it had exactly what I wanted from Tim Burton doing Dumbo and there's some great performances in there they amp up mm, a lot Be- yeah. like we were saying there aren't actually that many characters in the animated film so it invents and adds in loads of other characters you have two really great turns you have Danny DeVito as the sort of uh, sleazy ringmaster who's also he has got a soft warm heart he's not actually the big bad guy because the big bad guy is Michael Keaton there's this whole second section of the film that goes way beyond the plot that we get in the animated version which is once Dumbo becomes this sensation with his big flying ears 
the whole circus gets bought up by this mega entertainment corporation and it felt like a really sort of quite fun winking commentary on Disney itself on Disney as this sort of big corporate entity that buys up dreams and sells them back to people told within a Disney film with this really fun performance from Michael Keaton in this really brilliantly evil toupee so I I had a lot of fun with it I think it looks beautiful and the main issue is that Dumbo himself doesn't have a huge amount to do in the plot but I would argue that that is also the case here a lot of things happen around him it's Timothy Q Mouse who has the agency who gets things happening who moves the story along so it has a bit of that problem I think the other problem is that they introduce this central human figure played by Colin Farrell who is just a bit of a boring character who doesn't really get that much to do but it's also not incredibly racist so I think it genuinely (laughs) is one that you go okay the animation will always be what it is but hey we could do the story again and we could update it in a lot of ways and do something different with it and for me i like the live action disney films that do something different with the material and i think they really did that with dumbo so yes i'm aware that not everyone feels the same but i i like it did you like it I was really disappointed by the pink elephants. It's like a very small, short reference to it. And I was looking forward to seeing what Tim Burton, of all people, was going to do with the Mm -hmm. pink elephants. Like When you say Tim Burton Dumbo, I guess Tim Burton is clearly into circuses. It's the third film in which Danny DeVito plays a ringmaster (laughs) of a circus for Tim Burton. But um, I I really wanted to see what he was going to do with the pink elephants, and that was a crushing disappointment. I think he made the best of a very difficult assignment in kind of expanding it and adding these characters and stuff. But it's not my favorite kind of mid-range in my disney live action rankings that's fair so so what else was there has has there been any animated sort of straight to dvd stuff yeah well this was kind of like snow white there was an animated straight to dvd sequel to this in the works when the pixar guys came in when john lasseter came in and shut the whole director video sequel program down this one was going to be a kind of babe pig in the city scenario it was going to be Dumbo getting lost in the big city uh, with a group of circus friends and it was going to introduce Mr. Jumbo. It was going to be Dumbo finding out who his dad is, possibly an African elephant with big ears. We'll never know, Sam. We'll never know. Yeah. I think the more significant spin-off of Dumbo outside of the theme parks, which we'll get to in a minute, is a live-action TV show from 1985. It was one of the first TV shows produced specifically for the Disney Channel, and it was called Dumbo's Circus. And it is about a slightly older Dumbo who now has a whole host of new friends who have their own traveling circus, which Dumbo pulls through the sky using his magic ears and they travel all around i don't know i guess the world teaching children basic lessons about being kind to others and not talking to strangers and things like that i'm going to show ben here a picture of the cast of dumbo's circus oh no it looks awful oh it looks so cheap they're live action they're like costumes yeah they are people in oh. costumes so for a second it looked like really cheap cgi and then i was like wait it was the 80s no it's 1985 so oh yeah uh yeah it's very unsettling and kind of creepy and i also just reject this idea the whole point is that they are captive in the circus and <laughs> ideally they should be freed so i reject the fact that an older dumbo would continue oh right yeah of the circus i that feels wrong to me 
Just to point out a few characters there, you've got Fair Dinkum, the ringmaster. He's an Australian koala. And you've got at the back there, Lily, the sexualized cat. So that's pretty much it in terms of visual media. But we've got to talk about Dumbo at the theme parks. Um, So we've talked about Pinocchio and Snow White, which both had these, um, what were called dark rides. But Dumbo was realized in a different way. And Dumbo, I would say, is responsible for one of the most iconic rides at Disneyland. The Dumbo flying elephants, right? Yes. It's, I mean, you know them. I, I don't even need to describe. Anyone listening must know this. It's big, you know, plastic Dumbos on big mechanical arms spinning around the circle. It's like you're flying on Dumbo. It's it's a fun ride. It's cute. I mean, it's it's for kids, Ben. It's for little kids. <laughs> it's not the most exciting ride, but maybe this is why the idea of Dumbo flying is the thing that's in the cultural mm. consciousness so much, because that is what things like the rides focus on, is on his flying ability. So maybe that's a big part of that. You've also got Casey Jr., who has his own ride at Disneyland. He's one of the many trains at the original Disneyland. Uh, Walt was going through a real train phase at the, at the point in time when he was designing Disneyland. He's kind of like, he's got all the little circus carts. You can go in the monkey cart or the tiger cart or whatever and go on a nice little journey around Fantasyland. But the main thing I wanted to talk about in terms of Dumbo and the theme parks is the opening day Dumbo costume. So on YouTube, you can watch the original opening day broadcast for, for when Disneyland was first revealed to the public, which is entertaining for a whole number of reasons. And I would thoroughly recommend anybody watch it. But the thing that jumped out at me, you can only kind of see him in the background bobbing along, is this original opening day Disneyland Dumbo costume. Sweet Jesus. It is horrifying. Oh, its head is so bulbous and its trunk is so wrinkly. Oh, that's that's a nightmare vision. That is more like one of the pink elephants on parade rather than Dumbo. Did they I hope they locked that up and n- never let it out again. Danger, mad elephant. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't around for very long. And they transitioned eventually to a kind of upright, stand-on-his-hind-legs Dumbo, and he's still not really a character you see very much. Um, He's also got, like, windows in the front of his face for the the performers to see out of. But it's a lot more obvious now. They can really easily hide those things in the costumes in ways that you can't see. And this one, he's basically got a window in between his eyes that you can physically see into. That is deeply disturbing. It's very entertaining to watch him in motion, though, bobbing along in the back of this opening day parade. Yeah, so that's Dumbo. Um, not a huge footprint in kind of the movie world after that film was released, but I think made a pretty big impact on the parks and on my nightmares. And that is it for this week's class. Join us again for next week's seminar when we'll find ourselves enchanted by the sights, smells and adorable creatures of the forest while listening intently for any snapping branches as we uh, take aim at Bambi. Is that okay to say? Who knows? In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you fancy dropping us a little review, we'll thank you by coming to your house and putting on an ethical circus show. We'll basically just be serving you custard pies in a respectful, non-clown-like manner, and we promise not to spike the champagne. For now, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Thanks so much for listening. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Disneyversity.